episode, I tell a couple stories about the most tumultuous relationship I've ever been in, the ups and downs in my journey to self-love through the end. A surprising piece of advice from my cousin when I traveled to London really stuck with me and it's something that I cherish to this day. So I hope you guys enjoy Passing Through, Episode 3, London. I didn't eat that summer. Well, I ate, but not that much. I'd grab two slices of wheat bread, toss them in the toaster, then generously spread half a scoop of peanut butter on their bellies. I didn't even care if I chose the chunky, flavorless beginning of the loaf. You know the part that everyone throws away? That's how much your girl was going through it. I was eating the butt of the bread. That was my meal for the day. That was the menu for the week. Toast was the only form of solid substance I had energy to prepare. A ploy to silence my stomach's rumbling protests. I'd lost my appetite before, for the same exact reasons I lost my appetite then. A boy. But not just any boy. My first real boyfriend. We met as romantically as any 16-year-olds could, standing in line, anxiously awaiting our entry into an STI cesspool known as a 15 and up club, which I think has finally closed down due to like 793 health and safety violations. I spent the previous weekend trying to romance his handsome Nigerian sidekick to no avail. But that was then. This was now. And I wasn't going to waste this forever 21 fit for no one. My hair was pinned straight, fresh off a hit of that creamy crack. A teal blue tube top stopped just above my navel and I was rocking a crispy pair of off-white K Swisses. Your girl was feeling herself. I could feel Chris's gaze beckoning mine the moment I slid in line. When our eyes locked, I remember thinking, this dude is way too pretty for me. He's actually prettier than me. Definitely not my type. But after a long night of sweating my hair out to numerous Lil Webby songs, the lights cut on, bouncers immediately ushered a herd of teenagers through two exit doors, and Chris and I were pulled in the same direction, locking eyes once again. We both laughed awkwardly, exchanged a handful of flirtatious comments, and went our separate ways. The next morning, I hopped onto the home computer and logged onto my MySpace. Ah, okay. A friend request from Chris. How timely. I didn't really remember what he looked like. Or better yet, I didn't know what he looked like outside of the dungeon darkness of a teen club. So I gladly accepted his friend request and clicked through a couple of his photos. You know, had to see what I was working with. And as bare-boned as MySpace was back in the day, the platform still beckoned us to be the conductors of our online orchestra, presenting our best selves in that little square picture frame on the left side of the screen. His first picture was in a football jersey. Okay, he's athletic. Next one was a good-looking group of guys. Okay, he's got cool friends. A picture of his grandparents. All right, he's a family man. A picture with a red cup. But still down for a good time, though. Not bad, not bad at all. We exchanged messages, then phone numbers, then phone calls. Side note, I couldn't even really tell you what I liked in boys at 16. I don't think cuteness was even a requirement. I think they just had to like me back and smell good. 16-year-old me had no idea that exchanging a couple of MySpace messages with a guy I met at a teen club would lead to the most tumultuous relationship I've had to date. By my junior year of high school, we'd already broken up and gotten back together about 111 times. He would break up with me, I would cry and beg for him back. In between time, he would sleep with other women and party with his friends until all of his shenanigans exceeded some type of fuckboy bliss point, and he'd come back. We were, in fact, a teenage 
Tyler Perry movie. Yeah, let that visual sink in. We were on again during his first semester of college, my senior year of high school. Chris was venturing into the unfamiliar, and I was still willing to be the old faithful on-again, off-again girlfriend. No one, before Chris, had made me feel like he did. I mean, sure, when we would argue it was volatile, but when we made up? It was an intoxicating cocktail of convenience coupled with a sudden shot of relief. Feeling a cool wave of passion after trekking through the sweltering desert of loneliness is highly addictive. But remember, the desert heat begets hallucinations, and extreme lows make the average look exceptional. After a couple visits back and forth to his campus, I felt like we were in a good place. He was playing football and busy with schoolwork. There wouldn't be the same distractions. On a cold, dewy April morning, I hunched over a heap of laundry, separating, folding, and stacking, when I heard my phone buzz frantically on the kitchen counter. Chris, sniffling, short of breath, squeezed out a somber, Hey. What's wrong? I asked. Just take, just take a deep breath. I need to tell you something. He whispered, his voice trembling between syllables. I froze. Before I could even gather my thoughts, my subconscious was already screaming, Bitch, we told you so, in the opposite ear. With the phone pressed firmly against my cheek, I set down my half-folded sports bra and eased myself onto the couch. My elongated silence was cue for him to confess, two fresh tears already staining my flesh. Babe, I've been with other girls. I cheated. He whispered. I love you and I, I wanted to tell you, be real with you. I know it's going to take a long time for you to forgive me, but I... How many? I interjected. How many girls? Four. Who? I probed. The who didn't matter. A part of me wanted to deflect blame. I wanted to know the girls' names so that I can compare who they were to who I was. But Chris was the common denominator in the erosion of trust, the main culprit in dissolving the little confidence I had in our relationship. Now, if my actions actually matched my self-image, I would say that his confession was the shock I needed to muster up the strength to leave. That I packed up my things, blocked his number, and decided to do bad all by myself that spring. Or the spring thereafter. But I'd be telling the same lies that this dude told me. He was persistent. Throw rocks at your window at 2am, persistent. Show up in your high school parking lot on a Tuesday with a dozen roses, persistent. Call you on three different numbers until you slipped up and answered one of them, persistent. About a month after that morning in April, I caved in. He agreed to unfriend all the girls he cheated with on Facebook. I took an illusory sense of solace while breathing down his neck watching him scroll through profiles and then click the unfriend button, as if that actually prevented him from cheating again. When we were off again, he would hop right on Facebook and refriend every single one of those girls back. Of course, I'd do a weekly, oh, he's sleeping, I know his password phone check, and I'd find him telling girls he was single, asking them to meet up, the whole nine. My friends pleaded for me to stop. Girl, you deserve so much better. You don't need him. Take time to focus on you. All petitions that fell on deaf ears. How could I be having fun when every time I hop on Facebook, the love of my teenage life was tagged in a photo with three girls in miniskirts, their skinny limbs intimately tangled in his? Eyes bloodshot, fingers possessed, I'd click through every single girl tagged in his pictures and deconstruct their relationship. Was he commenting on their wall? Liking their pictures? How long have they even been friends? Have I met this girl? Ooh, I bet I have, and I bet she smiled right in my face. 
I was the fakest Facebook detective I knew. And after anger always came self-doubt and sadness. Two emotions that hit so hard I quickly learned to soften their blows with false pillows of reassurance that I was the only one he really loved. I had to be. Was he throwing rocks at her window? Buying her flowers? Was he pleading for her forgiveness? And not to mention every time I even talked to another guy, he would turn gang green with envy and threaten their face with his fists. He would never do that for these other girls. Yeah, mistaking possessiveness for love was my middle name. The warmth and satisfaction I felt from Chris's possessiveness wasn't like pressing your hands near a crackling fire on a chilly winter day. It was like being put on a stake and slowly rotated in circles, the envy gradually roasting your insides. We were back together the beginning of my summer dedicated to toast, and there was no better feeling than the start of summer. You could finally walk outside and feel the sun on your bones. Bluebirds danced and chirped their greetings by day, and fireflies, their bulbs balmy and mesmerizing, greeted you at dusk. Chris finished his last semester the previous week. It was going to be a great summer. The first string of days we spent together were pretty average. The occasional arguments, the parties, the sleeping at each other's places. Nothing out of the ordinary to provoke the usual breakup, I thought. And on top of that, this guy had royally fucked up only about a month ago. I had less fouls and offenses committed in our relationship. The ball was in my court. 23 days into summer, we finally decided to spend some time with our friends. He would do his thing, hang out with his boys, and I would do mine. Two days into our alone time, he broke up with me. Again. Via email. A convenient five days shy of his trip to London. On a Saturday night... My friend Grace and I were hanging out in her basement, swapping delicious stories about our boyfriends, classmates, and teammates, exchanging full belly laughs, the kind that start just below your gut, collecting bass in your torso and treb in your throat. I logged into my Facebook to illustrate some random point to Grace, and I had a message from Chris telling me to check my email. Trying to remain calm, I clicked out of my Facebook and signed into my Hotmail account. At the top of my inbox sat an email from Chris. Subject line blank. Naka, I've been thinking about this for a while. If I really cared about you, I'd tell you the truth. I think we're better off as friends. All the fighting and arguing isn't good for either of us. Reading this isn't easy, but trust is coming from an honest place. I'd ask that you please not try to contact me. If you do, I won't answer. I need space. Chris. I couldn't breathe. What do you say? Grace asked gently. I sat paralyzed behind the screen. Sure that my heart had stopped, certain that my world had crumbled and that my life was over. Her question for a second snapped me out of my delirium so I could inhale a sharp, painful breath and exhale a cry that answered her question. I motioned for her to come read the email. Later, when I finally gathered myself, I asked if she would drive me across town, to his house. What type of coward sends his girlfriend a breakup email? He wouldn't be able to say these things to my face. On the drive to his house, I called him, say, 250 times. His phone would ring, then go to voicemail, ring, then go to voicemail, ring, then go to voicemail. Please leave your message. As we approached his house, my throbbing heartache was reshaping into rage. Two cars sat in his driveway, an off-white pickup truck, and his pitch-black Ford Focus. One must be his dad's, I thought. Damn, there goes my rock-at-the-window idea. And with my luck, I'd fuck around and shatter glass, sending Grace and I on a run for our lives.
I called again. No answer. Grace, I pleaded. Could you, could you call him? She handed me her phone, shooting me a solemn look of pity. I dialed his number and waited. Hello? Chris, what the fuck was that email? I need to talk to you. I'm, I'm at your house. Can you please talk? Can you please just talk to me for a second? I called again. No answer. The silence broke me. My wailing woke the dead that night. A cry so deep even Grace knew words couldn't console me. Speechless, she put the car in reverse and rounded the corner out of his subdivision and onto the main road. I sat in the passenger seat, rocking back and forth trying to calm myself, my tears soaking her leather seats with sorrow. A month went by without any contact and he already returned from London. Another two months went by with no texts or phone calls and I was set to embark on a trip to London myself. My dad wanted my older brother and I to spend more time with our first cousins, who came to visit us in the States four years earlier. I was most excited to reunite with my oldest cousin, Chi-Chi, who was by far the coolest person I'd ever met in my life. I mean, she was older, smoked cigarettes, never left the house without lipstick, wore heels everywhere, touted a raspy British accent, and had more knowledge about boys in her left pinky than I did in my entire body. When my brother and I landed at London Heathrow, we made our way to the Piccadilly line. In my hand, a piece of paper with my aunt's address in all caps was circled and starred. We hopped off the metro at Woodgreen Stop, quickly heaving our luggage to the ledge before the doors closed. We trudged a ten-minute straight shot to the house, the wheels of our bags snagging little uneven pieces of cobblestone along the way. I won't bore you with three weeks' worth of details. But just know I traded my diet of toast for Nando's and my Forever 21 Fits for Primark Fines. It was sweltering hot that summer, so all of us would walk to the corner store and pick up pineapple juice and colorful cartons, a six-pack of Red Bull, and a couple packs of Starburst, the kind they didn't have in the States. I was actually disconnected because technology wasn't what it is today. But some days, though, I'd find myself staring at the ceiling just before bed, wondering if he was thinking of me, wondering if he missed me. On the second to last night of the trip, my cousin Chi-Chi and I lay awake at 3 a.m. swapping boys' stories as the radio played softly in the background. She's still by far one of the best storytellers I know. Listening to her words color her experience was like going to cinema. I laughed when she laughed, screamed when she screamed, cried when she cried. She was taking me on the emotional roller coaster that was her love life. And there I was, thinking I'd been through some shit. God dang. When it was my turn to talk about my trash relationship, she was all ears. Sizing up my descriptions, assessing the weight I gave certain details. Do you love him? She asked. Yeah, I mean, we love each other, or at least I thought we did, I replied. We both rolled onto our backs, the moon softly highlighting half of our faces. Neka, she laughed. I know what most people are going to tell you, that you don't need him, he's garbage, leave him. Never talk to him again. I'm not going to tell you that. I'd be one to talk. People are going to do what they want to do. They're going to chase what feels good. But please know, this isn't it for you. He isn't it for you. I've dated the same men in different bodies. All the relationship failed because I didn't love myself. So when you decide to love yourself, Nate, this thing that you have with Chris will be over. Like, really over. And it's going to fucking hurt. She spoke so matter-of-factly, I didn't feel like she was giving me advice. I felt like she saw a future I hadn't lived yet. 
Shit, I wish somebody had told me this when I was your age, she cried. To this day, I'm not completely sure why certain conversations have caused my paradigm to shift. Maybe it was time and place. Maybe it was because I was across the pond with no way of hitching a ride to Chris's house. Maybe it was because I listened so intently to my cousin's experiences that I indexed them as my own, no longer wanting to mistaken passion and possession for love. Whatever it was, something clicked, and I was never the same. My dad pulled into our driveway after picking my brother and I up from the airport. It was late, so I kissed my dad, hugged my brother, and transferred luggage to my car so I could unpack at the apartment. Nearing the edge of my subdivision, a car flashed its headlights behind me. I shrugged and kept driving. The car then started to honk in little short bursts, so I pulled over, recognizing the vehicle's silhouette in the summer night. I rolled my eyes and half-cracked my window when I saw Chris approaching in the rearview mirror. Hey, can we talk? He said sweetly. I let out an abrupt, obnoxiously loud laugh and shook my head. Nika, please. My head was still shaking when I looked up and said the most powerful sentence we all possess. No. Before he could respond, I rolled up my window, turned up the radio, and drove off. Well aware that the high of standing up for myself would give way to moments of missing him, and that this shit, when finally over, like Gigi said, would fucking hurt. But that didn't matter. I was one step closer to experiencing real love. Through loving myself. Thank you guys so much for listening to Passing Through Episode 3. I'd really appreciate if you'd like, comment, subscribe, rate the podcast. I'd love to know what you think. I really appreciate you taking the time and all the love that you guys have shown. You have no idea. 